Hey, this is Carrie from Wrap Your Head Around Silks. This is the Expecting Ariel's podcast. Hey guys, great to have you today. If you want to go to wrapyourheadaroundsilks.com, go ahead and click the link in the show notes. Got a lot of free content there for you, including a free mini course, 10 chapters of some great nuggets of advice, and uh, it's right there for you. Check that out. Today we have Dr. Sue Havens. She is an old colleague of mine. She's a physical therapist. She's a mama and she's an aerialist. This is a fun conversation. We nerd out so hard on everything PT. Let's get started. Yeah, it was Sarah doing a uh, workshop and that was actually the first time that was like the first time I got back to Ariel, I think after my pregnancy. I'm trying to remember. We're at the age that I can't just get her the snack. She has to carry the bowl. If I help her with the bowl, it's like full meltdown. She has to put the bowl on the table herself. Okay, so she's got strawberries now and the world has not gone into World War III, which is great. <laughs> So I'm just going to start over because I think this is a great way to start the podcast. So I had first met you at this studio called XTC in Eagle Rock. Sarah Romanofsky was teaching a workshop there. I was being taught by Maggie Baird. Do you remember Maggie? You know, I still, yeah, I still know Maggie. She keeps saying she's going to come train and she, she's a little, a little busy these days. She's a little busy. So Maggie Baird is the mother of Billie Eilish. Yeah. Everyone knows who that is. And we we grew up with with Billy and Phineas just running around. In aerial class. They did they in aerial class. While we were taking that workshop. Yeah. I mean, sorry, we didn't grow up. They grew up and we they were just we in were grown space ups because already. <laughs> we, we are already grown-ups. But Maggie, who's their mom, who was like the coolest, coolest nice mom. Best person. She was the person who ended up training me to become a teacher. She's the very first person who ended up doing my teacher training. That's awesome. She's the best. Yeah. And then later on, Maggie went on to be like, oh, she's like, can you sub some classes? I have to be on tour because Billy's too young. And then I think that she has completely just now she, you know, it's too big. Everything's too big. They're so big. So, yeah. So that's where I first met you and you were coming back from your, your pregnancy at that time. And this was, this was 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of friends in common. And since then you became a physical therapist. I remember running into you at JJ gym and you were in the midst of taking care of your daughter plus doing all your credit hours, which could not have been easy. No, a little, it's a little no. time consuming. It's a little time consuming. And then on top of it, Ruben's still your partner. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Ruben, we like to affectionately call him uncle Ruben <laughs> because when JJ's was more of an open space before COVID, he would like reserve a point and I would have 
75% of the space and he would have 25% of the space yeah. for my class. And so because my students have been my students for so long, after a while, they just stopped listening to me. I don't know how that happened. That's what they but do. They just, wanted, they just wanted to know what Ruben thought all the time. Because <laughs> Ruben is a hobbyist, but he's the best hobbyist you'll ever see in your life. Like he's straps. He's straps, dude. Yeah. So strong, trained Absolutely. so well. Abs for days. And so he, my students would just start asking him questions instead of me. They'd be like, so Ruben, how would you do this? I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. thanks guys. I'm not just standing right here. Sounds <laughs> about right. Am I chopped liver over here? So yeah. then for those couple of years that Ruben um, intersected with me and my students, he, he gave us some pearls of wisdom. He joked around. Uh, yeah. So I've been kind of, you've been in my, in, we've, you know, we cross spaces because we're in the same aerial community together. Yeah. LA and slightly older. Yeah. Community. What are you talking about? Well, you know, I'm just, (laughs) yeah. There's these new kids these days with their newfangled ideas. (laughs) No. Yeah. The kids these days who are in their twenties and we are no longer, but I reconnected with Sue because the circus doc had me and Jackie on for a panel for one of her workshops and Sue was participating in it because it's like circus plus PT. And um, I was like, Dr. Sue is perfect for this podcast. So I would love today to talk about you as a mom, you in your own aerial practice, how you juggled going to school at the same time. And then now your 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 PT life and and now getting into the circus circus side of PT. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, I would love to hear your perspective on all things momming and aerialing. Yeah, sure. So it's interesting because I feel like my motherhood is very closely intertwined with my circus experience. Because I only started Ariel like, I want to say like 18 months before I got pregnant. I hadn't been doing it that long. Like, really? I didn't yeah. know that. I, I've, I've been a dancer for like 25 years, but I'd only been doing Ariel for like maybe, a, maybe not even, I don't know, somewhere around a year, I want to say. Um, I'd been training um, at Hollywood Ariel Arts with Tanya and Terry Beeman and Rebecca when she was back there and Sarah um, when she was there. Um, and um, I had started because I was in a different grad school program. I was actually getting my master's in film production at the time. Ah, And I got pregnant my last year in film school um, and when I had just started Ariel. And I did Ariel through like my entire pregnancy. Wow. And you were new to Ariel. Did you have the basics before you were pregnant? It was interesting because I, um, just with my body type and stuff, like the hardest thing for me to get period was straddle. So I had like maybe just figured out how to straddle off the ground when I got pregnant. And then that kind of like quickly got harder. (laughs) And then the interesting thing was after I had my daughter, the straddles came really fast. It was, it was like really the opposite of when I had learned them. <laughs> it was, it was very interesting. Um, and I that think it's very interesting. 
I think it's because I spent like seven months getting progressively heavier and trying to straddle. And then when the baby was gone, it got a little easier. It's like you had ankle weights on and you took them off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's like, you know, by the end, I'm like, I I was, because I was able to straddle probably until I was like, almost seven, around seven months, probably. So like I was wow. with an extra 30 pounds of baby at that point. And, um, and you know, it's not the baby, the baby's only like eight pounds, but there's all the other weight that comes with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the flu, there's all the blood and there's all the fluids and there's yeah. all the inflammation and everything. But for my listeners out there who cannot imagine Sue. Sue is like this vivacious, bright colored. I've never seen you wear very much black, which is like the opposite of me. That's funny because I'm like, I was total like 90s goth girl and most of the clothes I own are black. (laughs) Well, I've never seen you in them. (laughs) I've I've never seen you in them, but super, super like hourglass, curvy, bootylicious, bootylicious is Dr. Sue. A large, yes. That was why straddles were so hard. (laughs) Very big (laughs) book. Yes. Anything prenatal postpartum that sticks out to you after this 10 years was, Um, do you have anything crazy that happened? Well, it was interesting because at that time there were like a bunch of us getting pregnant because I don't know if you know JB, see, and she had like done Ariel through her whole pregnancy, but our experiences were like so different. She was, she's like one of those people who's tiny, compact and just pure muscle who can like do a no leg climb without breaking a sweat. Her first thing first, she couldn't go upside down. She like, she just basically like did kind of muscly strength stuff for the most part um, through her pregnancy, but she would get kind of like motion sick and stuff my upper body strength like could not compete with how heavy I was getting. So I felt like, so it's interesting to like, just have that comparison of someone who had just gone through it. Yeah. And so for most of my pregnancy, like I was also kind of like, I don't know, you've been pregnant before you get, sometimes you have periods of a little bit of boredom. So I was going to aerial class like all the time. Well, well, that, I was on pelvic rest. So I had a, such a different No fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like I had a really easy pregnancy, but it was made up during my labor. <laughs> So I won't exaggerate. I was only in labor for four days and 17 hours. I usually say five days. What? It was four days and 17 hours. (laughs) Um, And it was funny because at one point the nurses was like, oh, it's not real labor. It doesn't, real labor doesn't go on this long. And then another nurse uh, checked my cervix and she's like, oh, she's halfway dilated. Like this is real labor. So, you know, screw that first nurse. But um, (laughs) it was an intense intense long birthing process and ultimately my daughter's head got like stuck in my birth canal and I ran out of juice by the end of day four and we ended up doing an emergency c-section at the end but my doctor was great she let me try for way longer than the nurses thought was okay they were like oh my gosh any other doctor would have made you have the baby by now I just did a podcast with a woman who I thought like no one else is going to beat that (laughs) for it being in labor I was like whoa I have never heard of that log and literally you just blew her number out of the water the next day I'm not saying you should have a prize for that I mean I usually win when people get into the labor discussion (laughs) I mean I don't know if I want to win that it's not a fun prize like it's hard oh my god and did you do an epidural 
Um, I didn't until like the end of day four. Um, and then I finally, and it sucked. Cause, um, so for people who don't know me, I'm like known for my bendy back sometimes like people. Yeah. Bend. You're yeah. super bendy. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm a back bender. I'm not a forward folder. And so they had trouble during the epidural because my, like, because like I couldn't forward fold. But well, you also had this big belly. Yeah. And like, so you're supposed to, but the thing is the forward fold, like they want you to like flex through your spine, you know, they're not trying to get hip hinge so that it separates the vertebra so they can get the needle in. And like my vertebra was so used to the other direction. They were like, what? And the nurse had to like physically like force my shoulders down so that my low back would like separate a little so that they could get the needle in. Wow. Backbender problems, you know? And it was, oh, and it was also um, two days before Halloween when they were doing the actual like C-section. Um, it's, you know, it's like a bunch of nurses and two doctors and they're all mothers and they were all talking about their kids' Halloween costumes <laughs> while they were doing the procedure. And then, um, Oh man. It's a good timing for this episode. <laughs> Halloween to me, isn't that fun anymore. And then like, there's that gap where it's not fun anymore as an adult. And then you have the kid and then it's fun again. Mm-hmm. Has Halloween always been fun for you? Yeah, me and her father, um, who we're not together anymore, but we're still like good friends and co-parent very well. And um, but we're both kind of crazy Halloween costume people. Um, <laughs> she always I just finished actually her Halloween costume. She's a mushroom and um, the detailing that I put in there. She's the poofiest little mushroom ever. She's going to be so adorable. That is so did she pick this costume? Yes. She always comes up with what she wants to be. And then I sew and create her vision for her. That's good momming right there. <laughs> yeah. I gotta, I gotta get all the gold medals that I can, you know? <laughs> yeah. But she was not born on Halloween. No, two days before. Here's my question. How do you feel about having a C-section? You ended up with a C-section after all of that. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Is that what, like a fuck me? Like I could have skipped all this? <laughs> well, I mean, you probably know too. There's like all this pressure to like, to have your baby the correct way and do things the correct way, not do drugs or surgery or this or that. And I feel like, especially like in our community where it's a lot of like arty people, like, um, so like there's all that pressure. And then like, just to have the, the vindication that I definitely tried as hard as humanly possible. Um, especially cause I'm in, in the medical field. Sometimes I'll see people post these videos of like what you need to do to have your baby without drugs, blah, blah, blah. And I have to be like, dude, They'll be like, you just need to be more flexible or you need to do this or that. And I'm like, dude, um, I did all the things for five days. Baby, come out. Like, and so at the end of the day, I'm like, I have a healthy living child. So I'm just glad that she came out. You know, I feel like I didn't suffer from all that pressure very much. I think I had so many friends had kids before me that I really decided not to let anybody in on that conversation with me. I think I protected myself because I, even the little bit of unsolicited advice I got, I was so turned off. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, it just turned me off to the nth degree. Everyone has advice. Everybody about every stage. I know that a lot of people really feel that pressure a lot, whether it be from like their friends and family or maybe just social media. Or what other people did and all that. 
Although I still remember because I had a friend who was pregnant at the same time as me. She was four weeks behind me, right? So her, her due date was four weeks after my daughter's. And our daughters, she gave birth two weeks early. I gave birth two weeks late. We went into labor the same night. And her uh-huh. daughter ended up being born three days before my daughter. Oh, man. <laughs> I was like, you got like a month less pregnancy than me. <laughs> like, not fair. Oh, my God. And were you the type of woman who really enjoyed the pregnancy or was it the opposite? Um, No, I had a good pregnancy. I was like, I I feel like I got really lucky. I I also, my mom has, uh, she's told me like she always had really good pregnancies and, and another super unfair thing. So my mom, who has been like a size, I think the smallest she was ever in her adult life, like at 13, she was a size 14, right? And like, so she's always been thicker woman. And then after she had... Me, she was a size four. And after she had my sister, she was a size two. Uh, what? Yes. And so me, and you you mentioned earlier, I'm, I've got a booty. I'm a little bit bigger. And after I had my daughter, I, I didn't get as lucky as my mom. I mean, my mom like got ridiculously tiny after us, but I'm also a lot taller than her. But I still like, that's probably the slenderest I've been in like, probably since high school, man, was when I had my daughter. You mean after you had her? After I had her, yes. What is that about? How is that? I don't know. (laughs) Is it the breastfeeding? Is it that you're just pumping out all these calories? It probably was the breastfeeding because I did a lot of breastfeeding and she breastfed for like almost almost exactly two years. She like quit right before her second birthday. Um, And then I also like, I don't know about you, but I hate sitting around at home doing nothing. And I was a stay at home mom technically for the first two years. So I would take her on like three walks a day and then take her to aerial class. So she's, she was going to Hollywood aerial arts when she was like a couple weeks old. I am not a walker or a runner. Like I will get in my car to go two blocks. I'm not kidding you. Oh, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do aerial like six days a week mm-hmm. because I teach, right? Yeah. So um, I think one balances out the other, hopefully. What is the next couple years then? When did you decide to become a physical therapist? So it's interesting because after, so I had, I had graduated film school right before I gave birth. Um, I'd been a dancer for a long time before that. Um, and then I got into film school. Um, when I had my daughter, I realized like being a mom and wanting to get into film were not two things that made sense together. Um, okay. And ultimately, I definitely think I made the right choice getting out of that because it's a very toxic environment. And a number of people I knew from going to school are dead now. That shouldn't be. Um, from suicide? No, from from the the negative health effects of being in the film industry because it's it's toxic. It's like sixteen hour workdays, six days a week, no turnaround on the weekends, um, and I I like I it's crazy. I know several people who either died falling asleep on the car ride home. Or, oh my god! Yeah, or um, like two gentlemen I knew who were really great, like. Guys, they both died at 60 from like strokes because of being in the film industry for so long. They just like, they should not have been, I'm like, they were way too young to be dead. Um, So like the stress and the hours and everything. 
yeah, it's just a very tough and the food, like it's just not a healthy environment to be in. Like, cause they'll try to save money any way they can. And it's usually at the expense of the people working on it. Um, so I'm just like, I couldn't be in that environment, especially coming out of the dance world where like, you know, we can get a little crazy with stuff, but, um, usually like at some point we, we recognize the need for like mental health and physical rest and things like that, because otherwise you burn out and your career ends. (laughs) Um, so, you know, this is really top of mind recently because what just happened with, um, Onset of Rust, that yes, movie. Alec Baldwin. And then the freaking IATSE like almost went on strike for this reason because IATSE is the union that covers most of the people that work on set. Yeah. And most contracts. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever saw um, Haskell Wexler, who's this like iconic um, director of documentaries for a long time. He made a really good movie about this. And like, I think it was like 2006, 2007 called who needs sleep. And it's like, we're still arguing over like, you know, basic human rights of like being able to sleep from one shift to the next. So that you die (laughs) because it's such a common thing that it's like a trope dying, falling asleep on your way home from set. Like, it's terrible. No, it's such a mess. And you talk to, you know, every time I talk to my friends who are in that industry, it's just like what they're asking for compared to what they're settling for with these contracts. It just mm-hmm. sucks. It sucks. Yeah. You know, so, but it's still like, you know, they could still, it's, we're not at the end of the tunnel yet. And for people who do not live in America or do not live anywhere close to the entertainment industry, you know, we're talking about the, like the meat and potatoes people, the people that are on set every single day, you know, and they have families to support and stuff, you know, working environments. It's not like they get a break from movie to movie. They usually go right from one into the next. And so they don't get a vacation from these like weeks where they do these insane hours. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a freelancer, sometimes you're afraid not to take a job because mm-hmm. maybe you won't get another job. So, and so, yeah, I couldn't handle all that BS. And I, um, so I was sitting there at home with a baby and like I had just spent these all this time like getting into this industry from like I went to USC, the top film school in the world, as they like to say when you get in for film and like, Um, and I was like, nope, wrong choice. (laughs) And so I actually ended up turning back to, you know, my roots, like movement and dance. And because I was spending so much time just constantly at aerial studios, just to like get out and like do something with my time while I was home with the baby, I, um, I ended up, um, like getting, you know, getting, feeling more and more comfortable and learning more about Ariel specifically. And then when we did that, um, workshop with Sarah, same thing, Maggie asked like, you know, Oh, do you teach and stuff? I'm like, well, I have a background teaching dance and I've been doing at that point, I had been doing circus for like, you know, about two years. And, um, and I'm like, I'd be interested in like, you know, learning more about it. You know, I'd like training kind of thing. And so she let me shadow her and stuff too. So kind of same back. Oh, she, she was like doing that with a couple people. I thought yeah. it was special. She is. She's a very special person. And I love 
like it was one of the great things was coming out of like that toxic unsafe environment I was talking about with film is that her teaching methodology and her like hardcore thing is safety. And I love that because not enough teachers now that I see in our field, you know, the newer ones, um, sometimes they, they're, they don't know yet, like how big a deal safety is with Ariel. And especially when you're teaching, you know, XCC, they have a lot of kids and, um, and so she was just like, it was really great to see somebody who just always put like the safety of everyone, including the teachers and everything first and um, always advocated for the teachers to get what they deserve and to like um, get paid appropriately and all of that. By the way, Sue, you didn't hear me right. I said, I thought I was special. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't realize she's probably letting, she's probably like teaching a bunch of teachers to teach. I thought I was just me. I thought it was. <laughs> but I was going to say, you didn't know she was such a whore. <laughs> I didn't know she was like, I thought I was like her apprentice. What? <laughs> Maybe it was just us too. Maybe we're special. <laughs> Maybe no, I, I doubt. I doubt it. I doubt. I think it was probably bays. you just found out about all her side bays. Oh my god, this is so funny. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that's what she is okay. like. In and when it comes down to it, like she's like a teacher, and you know she likes to spread that. So there Man, we go. No, she's such, she's such a great woman. It's so funny yeah. because she was trying to like, also like, you know, look out for the studio that she was working with to make mm-hmm. sure they had upcoming teachers because, you know, yeah, LA is a big, LA is a big city, but the teaching community is not that big actually. No, it's not. And so because it's so small, you also have to worry that if you have like somebody who owns a space and doesn't really know the circus community, they'll hire anybody without really knowing the references. And sometimes, sometimes you get people who aren't, aren't teachers and have never taught before getting to teach because the owner doesn't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. And then COVID. So a couple studios closed, so there's less mm-hmm. studios yeah. now. Yeah, it's really interesting. The whole the whole thing's really interesting. Um, okay, so you were like, I can't do this film industry thing. I have a baby. It's not going to work with my lifestyle. I want a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. So how long was it before you applied for school? And then, um, man, I can't imagine doing this when you have a small one at home. Oh my gosh. So, okay, so I'd say, so she was like, she was a little under a year when I started teaching with Maggie and then, um, and then I just kind of hardcore got into teaching and I was also in pull a lot then too. So I was doing, um, a lot of, um, uh, like shows and stuff like that with pull as well. So it was usually, I was probably performing more pull and then teaching a lot of aerial. Um, and I did that for a few years and then I started to get, you know, the physical fatigue of, first of all, you have to like hustle to like, make sure you're still like a desirable teacher and like to get gigs and all of that. And then also just being physically exhausted. Cause at one point I was teaching like 12 classes a week and I was just tired all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, so probably I'd say when she was like five ish, I was like, I need to do some, I need to have like the next step. Cause just teaching and performing, it's going to like, 
drain me. Um, at the same time, it was great because like, um, I was like, I got to be principal in a dance company, which is like what you think about when you're, you know, in college and never seemed like it was going to happen. And then happened mm. because, because I had Ariel and like, all of that like ended up happening for me. So that was all wonderful and great. And I'm very glad it all happened, but I was getting tired and I'm like, I need something else. And then I felt like trying to think of what to do. I'm like, well, I have a big body of knowledge about the human body. Um, and then, um, I had done PT for like one injury before and I was like, that's kind of a cool job. And so I'm, I'm kind of a like, let's see what the universe says kind of person with things. So a lot of people, when they decide to go to PT school, um, a lot of times their undergrad was in um, Kinesio and then they like go straight into PT school and they apply to like 30 schools because it's very competitive um, and all of that. And I literally just was like, well, I'm going to apply to the one school I can afford, which happened to be CSUN, which is also one of the hardest PT schools to get into. Um, because they purely go by numbers. Um, they have super great pass rates. So everybody applies there and they're very inexpensive. So everyone applies there. Um, um, okay. So it's very, yeah. So it's actually just very hard to get in just because like they're, they're a solid, like basic inexpensive program. And, um, and so I, um, I just did, I was like, well, this is what I need to get into this specific program. I did those prerequisites. I went back to school. I was still teaching all the time. And then also like doing like prerequisite courses that I had not done as a dance undergrad. Like I decided to take like physics and chemistry and like all this stuff. And then, um, and then apply to the program and I got in. Woohoo. And so that was, that to me, that was like, okay, so the universe agrees with this plan. Yeah. Uh, and how many people get in compared to how many people don't get in there? Um, oh my God, I idea? don't know. It's a lot. Like, um, it, oh no, so only so only 32 people get in the program each year. And Okay, that's not a lot. Hundreds and hundreds and probably over a thousand apply every year. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it is very, very competitive. competitive. And I was, I was originally yep. on the wait list, but luckily I was like number four. I think it was like number five or something on the wait list. I can't remember. It was pretty low. Um, so that's good. Cause I got in. Cause you know, a lot of the people who get in also get in at all their choices because they have amazing, cause you have to have amazing scores to get in. So um, on all your, like the GRE and all that. And, um, and so luckily I got in cause enough people decided not to take the spots off the, the list. Um, and then and then I had to be surrounded by normal people for three years. And that was probably the hardest part. <laughs> Being around. What, what? You had to be around muggles. So what was so I mean, hard? What was really hard about muggles. that? It was like being around. It was like being with the Dursleys for three years. Um, <laughs> it was hard because also I came in knowing I wanted to be a circus and pole dance specific therapist. Like that's who I wanted to treat. I want to treat like dancers and weirdos like us who need our bodies to do these things and don't do that is not an acceptable answer. Like that's what I wanted to be, to be like, you're never going to hear me say like, well, you shouldn't be doing that because I think what we do is great and good for our bodies. And like telling people they can't do something physically just seems like, you know, preventing them from a, gaining a love of movement. And I don't think that's, you know, going to be productive for health. 
So that was like my philosophy. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you get in this program where everybody's concerned about weightlifting and like all this other stuff that I'm like, not super excited about, but you know, I dug through it. They deserve, they deserve stuff too, but I'd always have weird, weird questions. So was it more the actual curriculum or was it the people who were taking the curriculum that just had like a more muggle view of the body of work that you guys were studying? It was a lot of the the people and the teachers, like, and just like, um, and I'd have to, I like, I got like, I, I like to say I got negged a lot in PT school just for like people being like, Oh yeah, you're so flexible. That's not good for you. And I'd be like, I am healthier than half the people in this room. Like, come on. Like, um, it was just like, I just felt like there was a lot of like negativity around the things I wanted to be able to do with my body and just being like, it's my body. <laughs> like, and I'm, I'm in good health. Like I don't have back pain. I don't, you know, I'm like going on 40 and like, I don't have back pain. I don't have foot issues. Like I'm in pretty great shape for, for like somebody who uses their body a lot. Um, especially in terms of like, I live fairly pain-free ever. Of course, like any other aerialist, I have like constant, like oopsies where it's like, right. My shoulder did not mean to do that. And I'm, you know, for a week I have to be nice to myself, but I don't have like long-term chronic issues. And so the fact that they kept like being like, so, you know, it, it, it's one of those fun things because we have to do every test and measure on each other. Um, to learn. Oh, I see. And so like, you're kind of like the outlier. Yeah. So it would be like, so like somebody wanted to show an example of like, um, insufficiency of hamstring length. And the test for that was you stand, you lift one knee to hip height and then you straighten the leg. And so for everyone in class, except me, when they straighten their leg, their leg lowered because the hamstring was insufficiently long to maintain length across both joints when you extend or when you, you know, do it at both joints. Um, and so like, that was her example. And then my legs just hanging in the air and everybody looks at me is like, did you have to ruin the test? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And just like, you know, uh, or for, um, back strength, back extensor strength, like, so to get a five out of five, like good strength test on a back bend, you lie on your stomach, you put your hands behind your head and you just lift your chest off the table. And like, they're just looking to see that your sternum no longer touches the table. And most people, okay. most people can't, most people get a three or a four on that test. They, they have to like lower their hands to get their sternum clear. And so they did the example with me as the test subject. And I just lift my chest up to 90 degrees, right? Where I'm just like looking straight forward now. <laughs> and everyone well, you also have a lot of strength in your back to do that. Cause I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. And so it's that too. It's that I'm specifically, I'm a backbender and I have a lot of back strength. And so it was just like everyone in the class, the teacher was like, so she is not a good example. <laughs> no, no, you're yeah. not. You're not general population. None of us are. <laughs> no. Um, so, and then it was funny because then they, they did the ab test and like, I, you know, I have good functional strength for what we do, but I do not have like curls and just plain sit-ups are very hard for me because my back doesn't like to curl that way. I have to do like a really long warm up to loosen up my back with forward folds and stuff before I can like really do 
a sit up properly where you like curl the whole way up. Otherwise I just like mm. lift like a flat board through my lumbar because ah. I'm a backbender. And so like when they did the ab strength one, like I still passed, I still got a five out of five, but I was like just clear versus the other test where I was like completely off the table. Okay. This is so funny because all that the stuff you're talking about, like no one except for a PT would care. Yes. No one. <laughs> it's really funny. And then PTs care a lot. They like care. I'm sure it was like, like a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Too much sometimes. Although so life got easier. My last year when we did MSI, which um, is this branch of PT that's um, not necessarily taught at every PT school, but luckily it's taught where I am. And it's actually the same background that Emily Sherb has too, which is great. So that like, because I think it's very good for what we are, like circus artists, movement artists who um, don't fit these standardized tests very well. And these standardized tests are going to make it look like there's things not wrong with us when there are things wrong with us. Um, oh. So for instance, yeah, I could pass that 90 degree hamstring link test. I could pass that if I had a hamstring injury because for me, 120 is normal or, you know, things like that. And so unfortunately, a lot of PTs... Um, when they get someone like us, they're like, well, you get to 90 degrees. So your hamstring's fine. And you're like, I am in constant pain. and can't perform. Like, <laughs> like that's not okay. Um, and right. so I guess I is really great because it's, so it stands for movement systems impairment. And it's about seeing how you move and how that affects your symptoms. So, um, uh, like the most common one is back pain. And so a big thing for them would not be what's your strength, range of motion, blah, blah, blah on your spine. It is okay. Um, when I reach for a shelf, my back hurts, but when I touch my toes, my back is fine or the opposite. And that's because it's like movement specific to being like, okay, it's for some reason you're not aligning right. Or you're not recruiting correctly when you do a back bend, which is reaching up for something. Um, but when you do forward fold, it's not affected because the impairment's not on the other side of your spine. It's not on the other group of muscles or, um, it's not with that bone motion. So, um, it's really great cause it's so specific to the movements you do. So if you're a soccer player, they're going to care about like what rotation you get in your hips when you kick a ball. If you're a circus artist, they're going to care about like that your hamstrings are the same to both sides and that like you can straddle without pain and things like that. It's very, very specific to your sport and the action you have to do. And the therapist is forced to think uniquely for each patient. There's no like standard, like just do this if they have this symptom. Um, and like that class and the teachers of those, cl that class in particular, the professors I had for that class were like, really great about, they never said anything about like my movement being abnormal or different than other people's. It was always like, I was like, okay, so do this thing. You have to be able to do this. Like then the way you're moving now makes sense. Cause that's how you're able to do that. Like it was never treated as awkward or like as, um, as not normal. Like it was like, Oh, that's normal for you in the activity you do. And, um, with that approach, you can treat a patient such as a circus artist so much more appropriately and like actually get them better versus being like, well, you have to pass the 90 degree hamstring length test and your hamstring is better now. And then I can let you go. Um, it's more like, Oh, can you do the splits without any symptoms and pain and with proper alignment? And like, okay, that means you're better. That's 
the real true key. Like it's not, it's not so like you have to fit into a norm and that is health. Right. And it's meeting you where you're at. And for us, where we're at is somewhere very different. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. Is that, is that just a class or is it a certification? Like what is that well, exactly? Is it? So it's, it's, well, so, so it's like this system design. It comes out of this woman, Shirley Sauerman is like the goddess of MSI. Um, and she developed it and she wrote, she literally wrote the books on it. Um, and so some programs, not all of them, but, um, there are programs now that will make, cause each, each school can choose, um, certain extras that they make part of their mandatory curriculum. There's like the standard that you need to get licensed as a physical therapist. And there's not going to be a lot of MSI on the physical therapy board exam, but, um, our school, this, so CSUN, they have, uh, a main faculty and then two adjunct faculties who this is what they were trained up in and this is what they know best. And so they, um, they make it, uh, actually my class is the first class where it was a required course before that was an elective. They decided it was important enough and that there's enough evidence to support it as a really great way to treat, um, that they decided to make it part of their curriculum. Um, and there's not a lot of schools that have yet. Um, uh, and so usually you have to find someone who did con ed. So like con- every year we're required to do a certain amount of continuing education. Um, and so a lot of people before like my generation of PT probably like did it as con ed. And I was just lucky that it was included as standard curriculum. So I actually ended up getting probably more hours in it than I would have if it were a con ed course somewhere. Cause those are usually like a weekend or a few weeks. And this was literally like, you know, my last year of school was really learning a lot about this. So, or my last year, yeah, my last year of school was like just all, I was very focused on it too, because I'm like, I like this, this makes sense. And this makes me feel included and not like an outlier. And like, I feel like this is like what circus artists and pole dancers really need. Okay. So if I were just in the world, wherever, mm-hmm. could I go to my hospital or primary care and they're, you know, referring me, could I say, could I get an MSI? PT. Um, so your doctor wouldn't know what the heck that meant. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. That's why. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is good information to have then. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they might look for, uh, OCS, which is orthopedic clinical specialist. So there's this thing. Okay. There's this thing and there's pluses and minuses to it. And so a lot of people, um, will do a, either a one-year fellowship or they'll do it the old school way, which is you just do the work of like, seeing certain kind of cases like hands or orthopedics refers to like more like sports kind of issue injuries, things like that. Um, and when you've seen a thousand hours of those patients, you're qualified to take the exam, the board exam for that specialty. And then you get extra letters after your name. There's pluses and minuses to this. Um, so, uh, OCS is usually what people look for, but these days literally like, all the young people fresh out of school, they'll go do a one-year fellowship at Kaiser and automatically get those letters attached to their name. And I personally, from what I know of PT and the, the people I've seen, those letters, knowing somebody can get them one year out from doing a fellowship versus like one of the best orthopedic teachers I, I had in school, he told me he, like he didn't get those letters until he'd been doing it for like over 10 years. And he was so much more knowledgeable, I felt like, and, and like 
a better practitioner in many ways than, um, than the person he was working with who had like done the OCS straight out of school fellowship thing. And like, and so that really like, to me that showed like, he tried to emphasize like those letters don't necessarily mean a lot. Like, um, cause you know, the letters just means somebody likes taking tests and somebody had like had the patience to just get those extra letters attached. And sometimes that means you have this insanely qualified person who's done thousands and thousands of hours. And sometimes you've had somebody who did the minimum they needed to get the letters. And so, um, a lot of times with PT, I mean, you really have to like go look at them one by one and like try to get a feel for what they're like, like what their philosophy is, what their values are. And, um, and so like, if you went and looked at Emily Sherb's bio, uh, biography on her website, I bet it says MSI on there somewhere or movement systems analysis or impairments on it. Um, but most people don't know what that is. So a lot of people don't even include it on the biography because nobody knows what it means. So it really comes mm. down to like, you, you need to find, you got to find word of mouth, usually like find somebody or find their Instagram and see the kind of stuff they teach. And if they're talking about like, movement concepts and things that are like specific to individual bodies. They probably are more of an MSI person versus if they're doing like standard exercises that aren't necessarily like changed for different bodies and things like that, then it's like, Oh, they're probably more like traditional. Man. I don't even like my mouth is open a little bit right now. It was a lot. It was a lot. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had, I had some, uh, classmates who were very appreciative. Like one of them pointed out, like she hadn't thought about it, but she was like, her husband had pointed out to her is like, you realize that that classmate of yours, like your whole undergrad degree was in science and all your prerequisites were part of your undergrad. And she had to go back and do those things that were not her background. So that was kind of sweet when he brought that up. I was like, yeah, we should nice. her. It was really funny. She came in and she's like, yeah, my husband told me I should appreciate you. I was like, oh that's sweet yeah oh my god and so I don't know do you have any advice for women out there that are trying to change their career and and have a kid and are Mm -hmm. juggling everything um I think it helped me that my daughter was kind of like was my motivation because she like 100% was my motivation to not get into the film industry and be like this this will like, I won't be able to be present and be a mother. Like if I stay, like if I stayed on that course and she was like my motivation to be like, um, you know, to find something more long-term than just dancing until I couldn't dance anymore. Or, um, and she, and so that helped was like, it actually almost helped that I had this person who was my motivation. And I was very honest with all of my professors about my situation and my boundaries and stuff like that. And, a lot of them were accommodating. Some of them didn't understand. I just had to be like, okay, well, this person's not going to be accommodating, but that's okay because these others are. And like some of my teachers, like I had one or two, it was funny. It was oddly like the younger ones who were really accommodating who would be, and I think it's because they, a couple of them had young children or wanted to have children soon versus the older ones. Like their kids were out of school. So I think they'd kind of forgotten like, how much work it is to be a mom. Mm. And so like they would be, I had one and he was like, yeah, you can bring her to class whenever. Like he was like, because he was, he was the one who was like planning on having a kid soon. So he was like, I want to be super pro family. So he was like very accommodating. Um, and then 
Um, I would say the nice thing about changing careers later in life is um, school is easy when you're older, I feel like. Like you're not, you're not in that like school kid mentality of expectations or a certain thing and you have to get these certain grades and you don't stress out as much. And I was like, this is my limit for how much studying I can do because I can't, like I have to go, you know, help my daughter with her homework and this and that. So like, this is as much studying as happening and my grade will be based on that. And I don't like, and there's almost less pressure in that and that knowing that like you have your limitation and like what you accomplish is based on what you were able to do. And it's like, so you're like, I, I, I felt like, um, I had less stress about grades and tests than some of my classmates who were younger and like still in that, like, if I don't get an A, I'm going to die and, and things like that. <laughs> and I, I'm still, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm still kind of a type A personality. Like when I was a kid, I was very much like that, but just like at this point in life, I'm like, there's things that matter so much more. And that almost made me a better student. Like I was a very efficient studier. Like I, I would study what I knew I needed to study in order to pass a test and like things like that. Um, rather than trying to learn every single thing you could possibly know about a subject. I'd be like, what do I need to know to be proficient in this thing? <laughs> yeah, that that I have to say, I was already a good a good little studier and worker bee before mm-hmm. having a kid. But man, I'm so much more efficient now. Mm-hmm. I really am. Like, I don't know if other moms feel that way, but I actually, pandemic, right? So we're home a lot. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to be spending time at home, how can I be the most productive in this space? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've gotten more done this year than I did the years before she was born. Mm-hmm. I think I, not. I, think mom, I don't know. I think being a mom just like it helps you prioritize things more quickly. And like, like as we're before, like I would try to get every aspect of a thing done. Now I'm like, well, the only way this is getting done is if I do it now. And if it's not perfect, it just still has to go out in the world. And so it gets done. Whereas when I was younger, I'd be like, it has to be perfect. So it'd take you know weeks to do a simple project. Yeah. Perfection definitely went down. Efficiency definitely went up. Mm-hmm. And then also, I don't know if you experienced, you, you, I don't know if you had this issue before, but me saying no to people about things that I don't want to prioritize has gotten a lot easier in me. Oh yeah. I'm terrible. I, I don't know if that's... No. So okay. You were terrible. I, I don't know how terrible I was, but definitely now it's like, if it doesn't meet my needs... It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's like, cause you can't, you're like, I only have so many hours in the day and a certain number of those are committed to keeping this little person alive. <laughs> and, and that trumps like your little side project <laughs> or whatever. Or somebody's birthday party, you know, mm-hmm. like I feel bad a little bit, but I'm like, it's not my priority. I don't want to act like it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got better at all of that. So more shit is getting done. I feel crazy. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Like I feel a little bananas, but sometimes it's fine. Like this podcast, like I I brought it into my life this year, right? Mm -hmm. And scheduling with other moms, that's the hardest part of this podcast. Like literally it's the hardest part because we get on the phone. I don't plan it. And what happens is I've never seen my like lack of preparation turn out so well because it's authentic. Yeah. 
And I come at it with curiosity and I really get to listen to people and I'm asking questions on based on what they're tell- telling me, not based on what I planned beforehand. Mm-hmm. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So good stuff. good stuff. Yes. So are you going to, are you in your aerial practice now? Before school, I was doing a lot of aerial, a lot of pole. And then um, right before school, I had really started going hard with contortion. Ah. And then, and like, I was like meeting my goals and feeling great about things. And I became part of like the fit and bendy family with all that. And that's where I, and now I still teach for them now and all that. Um, and then school happened. I maintained my relationship with fit and bendy, which is great. But, um, my time for self-practice just went away because now I had school full time and then my daughter and everything. So self-care kind of fell by the wayside. And, um, and so like I had a, a joke like post I did on Instagram where like the first week I started school, I had a picture of me in contortion class and like my toes were touching the floor in my chest stand. Um, and I'd been excited because I'd like just managed to achieve that. And then uh, six months later, I took a picture and my feet are like three feet off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like the reverse before and after. That's amazing. <laughs> Through you. Yeah. And so I definitely felt like I lost a lot of like these wonderful new skills I had been acquiring right beforehand. And like I still now, so it's funny because like after pregnancy, like my straddles got so much better and came really fast. But now they're absolutely like I can't straddle in the air yet. Like I just, I've been like, it's almost like um, going back to aerial again. So after school, like I started finally making time for it because like after school, I had to like work for a while to like, um, you know, stay alive and all of that. And then, so I finally was able to like commit to myself that I was going to like do my aerial practice regularly again, probably in Feb- January or February of this year, I was able to finally like commit to that. And, um, and so it's getting like, everything's getting better and starting to come back, but oh my gosh, it's like, it's almost like starting over. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, relearning, straddling. Although with this body of knowledge I have, I feel like I'm part of the reason it's, it's taking me a little longer is that I'm doing it more correctly now. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's probably a really good thing because going forward correctly is much faster than going forward incorrectly and then have to step back like 75% of the way. Yeah. 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 I feel like my aerial skills, if I can commit to like three days a week, like they, they're coming back pretty fast. They're like not, you know, I'm not like full, throttle yet but they're coming back at a nice pace that I can live with and I'm like yeah I can see like getting to where I want to be in the next year or so and like being satisfied but contortion I really like that's something I had to do like every day to really feel like I was connected and making progress and I had just have not yet been able to get myself in that mental state so I've been a little like bummed there because like my splits are beautiful over splits, but I'm still like bummed because like, (laughs) I'm like, not like it's a different skill, you know, doing your splits in aerial versus like in contortion where I want to like, I need to like achieve poses that really require no cheating at all and having super square hips and things like that. What are you talking about? I never cheat my split when I'm in the air. Never, ever. (laughs) Dude, my split is so cheated. It's ridiculous. Like it's so turned out in the back. Mm -hmm. So turned out in the back. I'm fine with it. I admit to it in public. 
And I think for Ariel, you know what I'm saying? I don't mind it at all for Ariel. Cause I'm like, you know, usually I'm not like, it's not a ton of weight on my legs. Like usually it's more weight in my arms. So like, I'm not concerned about it, even from a PT perspective, but with contortion, like I, ha- I care about it more. <laughs> no contortion. You have to be able to square your hips because no. that's how you actually achieve that line that you want. Yeah. Oh my God. This is so fun. I'm so glad that you came on the podcast um, because otherwise I don't know if we would have caught up like this, but I love hearing mm-hmm. about all of this. And you're such a, excuse my language, but you're such a PT nerd and it's hot. <laughs> I am such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, you nerded out so hard and it's so awesome. I, I just get, I get super excited about it. It's exciting. And I love like, it I love, is. I love being able to learn out so specifically about what we do because what we do is super interesting. It is. And I have to say, like when you said that you had to spend four years with muggles or more, I was making fun of you. But if you word it in a different way, like you had to spend so much of your time with not not completely like-minded individuals, that's really hard, actually. Yeah that don't have your philosophy because Mm -hmm. I hang out with a lot of different people who have different likes and wants and stuff, but our philosophies align. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's much easier to, to deal with all the other differences as long as your philosophies align. So yeah, yeah. so that is really hard. I didn't mean to, what's the word? I didn't mean to downplay your pain. Okay. It worked out. I got to do my, um, it was really funny. So because I'm like such a passionate nerd about such specific things for our doctoral research projects, like in order to graduate, um, like there's two things you can do. You can do an experiment, like original research where usually you have an idea. For instance, there was this one group ahead of us who were like, they wanted to just test people's balance and heels and do all our balance tests, but with people in heels and without heels. Um, and things like that. Or you could do um, what most people do is like a literature review where they kind of like pick something they're interested in and they like go see what evidence is currently out there and try to compile it into something to get like a central thesis out of it. And I was like, I want to, I want to look at the epidemiology of injuries and pole dancers, <laughs> which is kind of more serious research. It's like real research and it's like, it's a higher effort, which they encourage. They're like, yeah, that's great. You want to do original research, but, um, all these are expected to be group projects. And I was, Oh, this is really sad. This is the sad, like sad girl, loser girl in school kind of moment for me. Like no one wanted to be in your group. The person in charge of like sorting all us, like the sorting hat, she comes to me and she's like, so, um, Nobody picked you. <laughs> you don't have a, you're the only person without a group. <laughs> oh, Sue. Yeah, it was so like, I was like, oh my God, I'm in Mean Girls right now. Like, what's going on? <laughs> oh my God. So basically, everyone else was basically researching things that were already, there were already findings on. There were a couple people who did original, but it was, you know, it was like, and my project ended up, I had, because pole dancers are very participatory, I had 286 people participate in that. What? Yeah. Oh my God. You literally had the best project ever. You blew it out of the water. Yeah. I had a great project. I had like so much research in my, when we presented our research at the end, like oh, I had so much that like um, the discussion, the Q&A portion for re- the presentations went definitely the longest on mine. 
I am very impressed from like a juggling standpoint and like your nerd standpoint. I'm very impressed and I'm very proud of you because that's a mm-hmm. lot. Thank you. It was a lot. I'm like, I still look back on it. I'm like, geez, how did I do that? And then sometimes you look back and it's like, um, whoa, I would not do that again, but so proud, right? Yeah. Oh, and I, I don't think yeah. that's the, the end of the story, which is, um, so usually the career path after PT school is you go, you work at another um, clinic for a while. And then like, if you're the kind of person who wants your own place, like after years of working in another clinic, then you eventually start your own. And um, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I'm, I don't like, like I've worked for plenty of other people in the past and I've found that it's not really the best thing for me. Like I burn out easily if I'm working for other people. Um, Mm. But you know, I had been an independent contractor before, obviously when like being a dancer and all that, and that worked for me and I got less burnout. And so I knew, and I know a lot of chiropractors like Dr. Ken, I don't know if you know him, pole ninja. Um, I don't. And stuff. So he's a fantastic pole dancer, but he's also a chiropractor. And like, I remember hanging out with him while I was still in school and we were talking about stuff. And like for them, for chiropractors, who their schooling is very similar in their, their breadth of education and their breadth of what they do as professionals is very similar um, in terms of like how we practice. And they're the opposite. Like they all go directly into private practice. They almost never go work for someone else at a clinic or something like that. And I'm like, it's the same amount of licensing, same amount of schooling, like all this stuff. I'm like, how come it, it's like, it doesn't, I don't see why. I can't just do that. Like, I can't just do what you chiropractors are doing because you guys do a great job at your jobs and that's how you do your job. Um, yeah. So I was the crazy person who straight out of school went into private practice and I now have my own clinic. Dude, this is amazing. It's amazing. I love it. I'm so excited for you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. If you go to the show notes, there's a link there to go to wrapyourheadaroundsilks.com where you'll find a free mini course. You can check it out. It is so easy to sign up and just register for the student portal and you can get started right away. Thank you to Sue for being here. I had so much fun talking to you. Thanks to Asa Watkins for music and post-production. If you're really connecting to this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, give me an email at carrie at wrapyourheadaroundsilks.com or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys, have an amazing day. This is the Expecting Aerialist Podcast. Can you say Curious George? It's the new word, Curious George. Very nice.